Excellent. Welcome to the DCast. Today we're going to talk about building the gang. In most design businesses, wages are your largest overhead, but without people, you're going to be working very hard to grow a studio. With the right people in the right roles, you can take on the world. But they can also be your biggest liability with potential negative effects on your culture, reputation, productivity, and profitability. Today, we've got two very smart people and culture practitioners and a creative director. And we're going to talk about how they find, induct, and develop teams. Righto. So with us today, we have Kirsty Grant. So Kirsty is VP People and Experience at Aura, a retail crime intelligence platform that helps retailers and police report, solve, and prevent crime. Welcome to the DTAS, Kirsty. Hello, thanks for having me. And next to Kirsty, we have Molly Workman. So Molly is passionate about everyday experiences that people have at work and how this integrates and impacts their lives. Molly's latest work includes Head of People and Culture for Rush, Agile Consultant for Radically, and Head of People and Culture for EasyVet, Talent and Culture Manager for Lotto New Zealand, and HR Coordinator for Auckland University of Technology. Great to have you with us, Molly. Kia ora, happy to be here. And next to Molly, we have Nick Riley. Nick is an independent creative director and brand specialist with over 15 years experience at some of Australasia's leading brand agencies. With a proven track record of leading teams to produce commercially successful and award-winning work, he has led major branding projects for Air New Zealand, Auckland Transport, Coca-Cola Amatil, New Zealand Tourism, Westpac, Methvin, New Zealand Cricket and No Ugly. Nick's other work includes Creative Director for Nick Riley Design, Creative Director and Partner Culture and Theory, Senior Designer for DesignWorks and Designer for Moon Design in Sydney. Welcome to the DCAST, Nick. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Excellent. Hey, um, so we'll kick things off with, with an easy one. So as professional services business, uh, people are your key assets. So Molly, how have you gone about finding the right people for Rush? <laughs> Not easily. <laughs> um, no, Especially in this market. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess this is an area that we invest a whole heap of our time in. Um, but as, equ as equally important as it is finding the right people, I think it's ensuring that people can choose you as well. Um, so part of it would be um, putting your brand out there, really allowing people um, to engage, know that you're there, um, then really opening the conversation up to be two-way so that um, people can choose if it's the right place for you as well. Yeah, I think that the smartest uh, um, talent are, are the people who are actually interviewing you at the same time as you're interviewing them. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah Nick, so you've, you've, um, you, you've kind of hired people as an employee, but now also as an employer. Any kind of differences in that? Um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe maybe earlier in my career, I sort of felt that, um, you know, often it was sort of just your portfolio that was often um, the thing that would get you um, get you hired. But, you know, now I sort of see it as I don't really think of hiring people based so much on their portfolio, but more on their values. And it's sort of, I guess, quite a big flip in terms of what you value, what, what becomes the most valuable thing that someone's going to bring to the table. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's a... That's how I sort of like to look at it now is that, you know, you can have people who might have a, an amazing portfolio, but if they don't feel aligned in terms of, um, you know, your values and, and the right personality, the right fit, 
um, for the business, then it's not necessarily going to be um, the most successful candidate. So yeah, it's more of that values-based perspective. Um, it just seems to be something that's that's yeah a big a big change that I've noticed over the last few years. So Kirsty, you must have hired hundreds of people over the last few years. <laughs> you know, is, <laughs> yeah. is it talent or values? <laughs> oh, it's like both. It can't be just one or the other. Um, and I think one of the things that we see in the market today is you you can't just like post a job up and hope that the right person is going to come along. Is you know to what Molly mentioned there, and it's building a brand and starting that conversation and sharing your stories and experiences so that when you do reach out because honestly like 70% of the market is passive you you do have to source a lot of the best candidates today what is that experience that you're giving them when they're coming and yeah. when they're looking up you when they're yeah. looking at the um you know the companies that you're you're working with um like yeah your values all of those things like are they are they getting a good story and a good picture of, of what you're up to so how do you how do you get that out there? I mean, you know, obviously social media and your website and all of that. But you know, is there are there things that you should consider in the way you write, you know, job ads and, and the mediums that you use? Yeah, a hundred percent. So on the um, on the job ads piece, um, there is a real um, move away from just being like here is your responsibilities and here is what we're looking for. Um, and do you benefits. want a great opportunity? <laughs> Have I? No, I don't. <laughs> so there's a real move away from that. Like all of our job ads now are really, they're telling a story about the impact that our product has and, and what we're really doing on, on that bigger kind of scale. It then talks a little bit more about the impact that the role has who the role reports to. So it starts to tie in a lot more around the manager so people can really connect with like who is the person they're going to be reporting to every day. Um, and then it talks to what is their first six months going to look like? And I think, you know, Molly, you might be able to talk to this as well as um, a lot of people in the market today, like they want to know what they're going to be doing day to day. Mm. Like what are the projects? Who are they going to be working with? So as much information as you can possibly give on that front, um, the better to sort of really differentiate. The other part, and this was like a really fun lesson that I learned relatively early on and I've kind of coached myself to be better at it. But when I first started writing job ads, um, I ran my job descriptions through a product called Textio, which used to be really like pretty much free at the time, but now costs a lot more. But what it does is it identifies um, whether or not you have a feminine tone or a masculine tone. And it turned out that I had like 86% masculine tone. <laughs> Wow, and so, so when I like, and it gave you like suggestions of like, there's some other words that you could use and here's some different ways of framing this. And so now I can like write in a more um, neutral way. But if you think about the, one of the problems that we have around attracting women into tech um, and, you know, certain different areas as well, like if you're writing an ad that's like geared towards men, then like you're probably not going to get your women applications either. So that was a fun, fun lesson to learn. <laughs> Yeah. But this is like design and branding, right? It's like knowing your, your customer and knowing your user and, and really trying to understand what they want to see. Oh, yeah. Was that, that expression, a physician heal thyself or something? You know, um, <laughs> we don't take our own advice as much as we should. 
Molly, you're talking to a lot of grads today, I understand. I sure am. I'm excited. Um, we did that. We did what uh, Kirsty shared about um, because one of the very few ads that we post that gets a lot of applications is our um, is our grad um, ads, which is really really cool and um, quite fun to kind of go back to that um, that way of recruiting where we're not um, having those you know really deep conversations with people straight away like the kind of rich reach out, sort of um, get to know each other before someone considers applying. Um, so it's quite fun in the sense that you get to meet lots and lots of different people. Um, our team went through some um, unconscious bias uh, training earlier this year. And one of the things we decided to implement was um, adding into our job ads and our recruitment processes um, a question which was... Um, something along the lines of, uh, you know, we, we want to encourage everybody to apply. If there's anything that would make this experience easier for you, we really encourage you to let us know. Um, you know, some people, even just the idea of coming into an office in the city for an interview, with people you've never met, just goes really um, against kind of cultural experiences and norms um, and it's been really awesome like in our um, graduate intake we've had people say oh you know I actually have a um, hearing impairment it would be best for me if I could do a phone call rather than this because I can plug my tool in and so it's yeah, really just um, exploring and and finding all of these different ways that you can be more inclusive to get that broader uh, talent pool because um, one of the other really interesting things with the talent crunch um, in New Zealand at the moment is maybe where employers were pretty specific about, you know, who they would hire and what, what kind of backgrounds they would consider. Now they're kind of going, oh, wow, where are all these pockets of talent that we haven't been kind of um, haven't been considering? And if you want to do that, you really have to understand how you can encourage those people and those groups to come forward. So um, we definitely haven't got it perfect, but um, ex experimenting. I can hear a whole lot of uh, uh, boomers kind of crying out in pain about this approach. Um, so, um, yeah, because it's, it's like, ah, oh, it's a job. We pay you and that's it. Um, totally. That's but that's the thing, right? And that's an entirely different view of, of work that people have these days is like this is such a big part of people's lives. They want to like every single candidate wants to make a really positive impact and like they're not just turning up and getting their paycheck and going home again. Like they, they really care about this and you can either harness that and when you do, amazing things happen, or you can like fight it, which fight is what it, a lot of traditional companies do. Yeah. Kirsty, you uh, spoke a little bit about the content of the ad or the advertisement being really important. How important is the forum in which that ad is advertised to, to get the right candidates? Um, yeah, so like you can put a job on a job ad and you will get volume. You will get less volume these days, it's worth noting. I think there's been like a 15% reduction in, in people that are actually applying for jobs these days. But like you will get the volume, but you will spend your time sorting through candidates that are less than ideal. And if that's how you want to spend your time, by all means, go about it. But I think the approach that I've taken is very much a 
I would rather have less conversations with higher quality candidates that I've gone out and sourced or that have come in via the community and the networks that we're a part of, um, because it's also a brand piece. Like if I've got a hundred applications for a designer role and like 99% of them are not gonna be suitable, that's 99 people that I'm declining, <laughs> which I would rather not do. So it's balancing the building the brand and like going and having really targeted conversations with with the candidates that are that are right for you but it's kind of different depending on the role as well though right because sometimes you do actually really want to open up like when you're doing graduate recruitment you want to be opening it up to every single possible corner because you want to be able to provide that um the equity and, and opportunity but yeah i think overall um sourcing is huge your referrals your network the slack communities like there is a slack community for everything <laughs> and like yeah. in like any community you can't just jump in and be like here's my jobs apply now you actually have to yeah. contribute and be a part of it and help solve problems um you know there's more and more remote work so there's more remote work job boards there's um yeah there's all sorts but it's like 70% of the workforce they're not going and looking at job boards they're not actively looking so yeah, so right. one of the nice things them. about creative industries is that, that you, you know, that there is a, a tradition of freelancers. And, and, and mm -hmm. Nick, I wanted to talk to you about this, which is the idea of tribe we buy it, you know, for both parties, like, you know, have a freelancer in the studio and then, um, you know, see if it, see if it fits. So how, how's that worked out for you? Um, I'm a really big advocate for, for doing it that way. Um, in, in my experience so far, um, it's always been better for both parties doing the try before you buy it. And I'm sure everyone's had different experiences, but um, I just think it gives both parties, you know, a great opportunity to, to get to know each other, to kind of test for the fit. And again, for me, it, it kind of brings out the the stuff that you just don't get from like that kind of interview and you're sort of making a call, you know, like, I've, like I mentioned earlier, I've, you know, hired, um, candidates that have really awesome portfolios but once they kind of got in the building you found that it just it just wasn't the right fit for both people and then i've you know had freelancers have that have come in where i've looked at the work and it wasn't necessarily something that had you know been exceptional but then once you got them in you're just like this is they're the most valuable person in the business mm -hmm. because you realized that they were committed and just awesome people to work with and that you know really sort of um you know, balanced out any sort of um, lack of skill or anything like that. And so I just think, yeah, try before you buy is, I'm, I'm a massive fan of it. I think it's it's a great option. Molly, do you have many freelancers at Rush? Um, yeah, we do have a pretty consistent um, kind of contractor talent pool being a services business. Um, every now and then we need to kind of flex our skill base in a different way. Um, but I think the really important thing when it comes to contractors or freelancers is that it is an equitable arrangement and that that person is being a contractor because that's the way they want to work um, and not disadvantaging them in any way, um, it, you know, because in a sense it's kind of the same as like a 90-day trial period and that's no longer legal to kind of test people out and then um, sort of, you know, uh, terminate their employment because um, without giving them any kind of real um, 
chance to improve. So we're really specific around making sure it's the type of arrangement that works for best parties. And it can be a little bit tricky as well once someone starts as a contractor to change the nature of that employment agreement because you're typically paying somebody a lot more because they have a lot more expenses. They don't have the security of an ongoing income. So um, that, that transition from freelance or contractor to permanent employee really needs to be quite carefully managed as well. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we love building and having like a really ongoing, uh, great relationship with contractors and also people that have left us as well. Like um, you have to be, um, you know, you have to play the long game and understanding that the New Zealand um, market is small and our alumni is really important to us and we, we love a boomerang. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, our, our managing partner has a great theory about, about it, which is, you know, she always says that to, to anybody who starts with us, that we, we're not going to have you forever, but we want to make the most of it for both of us while you're here. Uh, and it's a, it's a really nice way of approaching it. It's like not saying, hey, you're trapped in, this is a Hotel California of, of businesses and, and you're going to die here. Otherwise, we'll, we will, you know, we will ghost you forever if you leave. Yeah, let's be realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, just quickly, Molly, I just want to touch on it, and I don't want to go into this in depth, but New Zealand employment law for, for uh, you know, modern business practices, is it fit for purpose? Do you, do you find it a problematic at times? Yeah, I mean, um, I do. I'll, I'll tell you why. I think that the way employment law is set up is with the best of intentions, right? It's to protect mm-hmm. people. It's to make sure that people have a voice that they're not disadvantaged. And there are a lot of um, companies and people out there that don't have good practices in terms of respecting people. So it's really important and really well needed. Um, the, own, the One of the key problems around employment law is it's very rigid. And so if you are trying to build a culture that is really open, authentic, genuine, and then you have to pull in some kind of rigid process to do something by the law, it can feel really um, inauthentic. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's a bit of a knee jerk sort of like, why are you talking to me in this language? Mm, Um, Yeah, yeah, so I, I think it's very important. It's there. It's not flexible enough for the good guys out there who are trying to do things right um but but yeah i think there's there's a few there's a a fair way to go on that front to to give us something that helps really build those authentic cultures i think the challenge was is that employment contracts that was brought in by national and then uh the employment tribunal was brought in by labor as a kind of like a balancing act so you've got kind of these two these two ideas that are at at kind of conflict with each other which creates it difficult for small businesses sorry kirsty you were going to say something yeah, there's kind of two things. So one is um, absolutely echoing what, what Molly said there. Um, there is, like, often I find when people start, I almost have to, like, rebrand, we'll say HR, I hate that term, but I have to almost rebrand our function for them because everybody has got baggage in that area. Everyone often sees our function as process and compliance. It's where you go when you're in trouble. Um, you know, you, you don't want to have um, HR waiting in a, in a meeting room for you because something bad is going to happen. And like- we have to, like, retrain um, them. And, you know, you're, with Molly and I and lots of others, and certainly in the technology space, 
we've got a really different approach. You know, we are the, we're designers, we're designing the systems and the processes that enable people to do their best work. And so, yeah, 100% what Molly just said there, where, you know, you have all of these ways of working that are really um, open and transparent and flexible and like, you know, all about continuous improvement, but then you have this employment agreement that you roll out. And it's really, it's hard when you're in the recruitment process because you're like, here's how we work. And then you roll out the employment agreement and it is like whiplash. You're like, hang on a minute, how does this reconcile? <laughs> you say you're really flexible, but in a contract, there is this like stipulated time <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> um, so it is really interesting in that regard. Um, for a lot of small businesses, often they will go to the MBIE um, website and just kind of do the standard employment agreement template. Um, and like, it's great that there's this template that you can build there, but I will never forget um, hearing an employment lawyer tell me once that um, she always like rubs her hands together whenever she sees that um, one of her clients that's um, going against a previous employer um, when they are using one of those template agreements. <laughs> Because she's like, it's full of holes. I can like, I yeah. can win this kind of thing. Oh, but, <laughs> um, look, that's the worst thing. If lawyers can make take advantage of something on both sides, then that's a good thing. Yeah. But I suppose you know, like the whole whiplash thing. I think you know, the idea that that your culture should be stronger than this kind of this functional legal part of the relationship. Um, there was some famous kind of business head once said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and and I wanted to I wanted to ask you Nick, what do you think that the, the key elements of a good culture in a creative business are? Um, yeah, cool. I mean, it's it's a I guess it's a few elements, isn't it? But I think one is um, for I think for a for a creative business, you have to create a I, I guess a, a a culture of creativity. Sorry, that sounds quite funny to say it like that, but. A place where people are comfortable and free to be in a, in a creative zone. You know, I, I think a lot of creatives um, are who they are because they don't want to be working in a sort of like a corporate environment. Um, so you need to make sure that you're fostering an environment which which feels like it's a place where you can have creativity. Um, also, I think that um, you know creativity thrives in a positive environment. Um, it like really thrives in a positive environment and especially a, a, an environment that's sort of got no egos. So I think, you know, creating an environment where um, people feel free to, to talk about their ideas, people feel free to, um, you know, to, to do things differently if they think that's what needs to happen. People, you know, a place where people feel, feel free to have their, um, their opinions sort of aired, I think is really important for a creative environment, which I guess is in many ways less, less structure, less hierarchy. Um, and, you know, I think probably, you know, one of the other key aspects um, of that is, uh, you know, creating a, a culture where um, people feel like they're, they're all part of something, you know, they're, they're part of like a, a goal, um, a place where, you know, there's a there's a shared, shared understanding of what you're trying to do as a business of what you're trying to achieve, and where everyone feels like they're a playing a key part of that, you know, so that they're kind of all in it, all in it together. Um, and it has to be authentic. That's probably the key yeah. outtake out of that. It's like you can't force that upon your team. It has to feel like it's real and that they actually want to be a part of it. Um, as soon as it gets forced, then it just, I, th I don't think anyone will engage with, with it, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, have you, 
gone through a formal, I mean, not a formal, but, you know, that whole process of developing your 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 vision and your values with the team? Or was that something that like, when, you, when you set up uh, culture and theory, was that something that you two kind of um, had a vision for? Or was it something you developed with the team as it, as it grew? Uh, it was developed initially more at a, um, I guess, at a sort of a senior senior leadership um, level. But uh, personally, if I was to go back and do it again, I would do it um, much more at the team level. Mm. Uh, I think I think it's all well and good to um, to sort of you can start it at the top, but I do think that something like that needs a much deeper engagement with your with your people, um, mm. who you who are the ones you're expecting to kind of live and breathe it. You know, so it's got to feel right for them. Yeah, and Molly, what about what about Rush? Is that you know because you, you seem to be growing quite quickly? What is um, uh, you know what's the what's the vision and values process? Yeah, um, so I would have to say it's one of the um, one of the organisations I've worked for where it really does feel embedded and not forced. Um, the classic saying it's not just a poster on the wall, but um, our values are really part of um, everyday conversations. Um, and I think the really, really important thing that I would have to say about vision and values is if you don't intend to take that seriously, you'd be better off not to do it. Yeah, so absolutely. if we, mm-hmm. so we have, um, you know, our, our vision is we um, design technology to better serve humankind and our people will be the first ones immediately to pull up anything that goes against that. And it's a really healthy conversation. If we're hiring people and telling them that that's our vision and that's why we exist, and then we're doing something that contradicts that, it's going to do so much more damage than good. Um, So yeah, I think it's a a really integral part of culture and who we are, but it's, it's not just that, it's all of the behaviors, the micro interactions, how everything aligns to that, you know, like culture is how it feels. So if you walk into um, an office, not that much many people have the luxury to do that at the moment. <laughs> if you walk into an office and people don't say hi to you or, you know, your people leader, your manager leaves at the end of the day and just walks out, like, doesn't really matter what your values say. So it's continuously like designing those interactions, those experiences, the infrastructures, how we work together, um, clarity, all of those things that, that are really so important. It's um we, we have the process here where we don't we don't talk about values we talk about valued behaviours so it nice. becomes far less aspirational and far more active so you know what what are you doing about uh, you know to, to, to live the values and that's as a as a manager and as a leader that's something I kind of find really important that if I'm not living the values by doing valued behaviours then yeah I'm not I'm not I'm not a good employer I'm not a good manager. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes what's worse is if people don't feel confident enough to pull each other up because that's how yeah. we learn, right? Like, we're not mm. perfect. Of course you're going to do the odd thing where you're like, oh, gosh, that probably wasn't quite right. But if no yeah. one can have an honest conversation with you and be like, oh, you know that thing. Like, we're all continuously learning about ourselves and how things impact other people. So it's just as much, and I think it's been mentioned a few times on this chat, like, it's how important it is to create that space of safety where people can share their beliefs and views and other people can take it on in a constructive way. Yeah. So, um, Kirsty, what, what are your thoughts on culture? 
organizations. Yeah, it's it's such a, a mashup of all those things, right? Like you've got your vision and values that, you know, when you do have a purpose that's um, that's something that, you know, people can really align to, then that's amazing. Um, I think like that strategy piece is really interesting and that, that term like culture eats strategy for breakfast. Like I think one of the best elements of the aura culture is the alignment to the strategy. So every single person knows how they're contributing to the company's success every single day. And that I think that's like one of the biggest ingredients to it is they so know true. about the impact that they are having. And then the guiding principles or core values or, you know, those are lived and breathed every day as well. And it's even in the language and it's really, it's kind of freaky sometimes when people externally talk to different auras and they, <laughs> they hear us use the same like terminology and phrases. <laughs> it probably sounds a little bit cultish, but hey, <laughs> <It's a little laughs> bit. Um, but it's, it's consistent, right? And there's, there's an element of that that's, that's really lovely because they are also seeing diversity at the same time, right? So they're not all seeing like these little robot lemming type things. We were all exactly the same. We're really aligned, but we all have, you know, different approaches. And I think often when I'm giving advice to companies around like cultures and values in particular is there are some things that you should talk about never wanting to change, no matter how big you go, you know, you there are these core things that are super important to you, but then you also have to be prepared to evolve. So Classic example, when we were earlier on, we had run fast and make things happen was one of our guiding principles. And that was just expected, but it was also survival when you're in a startup, like you have to run fast and make things happen. But as we scaled, whenever someone ran fast and made things happen, it broke things and it broke people. And so we had to make this really deliberate decision to go, you know what, that's not how we're going to get better. That, you know, we need to be a partner. We need to be deliberate. We need to take people along on the journey. And, um, you know, we evolved run fast and make things happen to be a partner and be deliberate. Um, and then another one was strong opinions loosely held, which is great. And it's still an element to what we have. but what we actually wanted is people that had those strong opinions to have the responsibility to go and seek the perspectives of others because it wow. is the perspectives of others that are going to enable us to find a better solution um so it's yeah it's you have to be talking about this stuff kind of every day <laughs> um oh, and be really yeah. highly aligned but then also be able to empower people to to make decisions so when you when you talk about you know having these these discussions, I you know I'm segueing nicely into into a discussion about development. So you know I think one of the one of the things that, that as an employer I've, I've only learned to do in the last kind of few years, which is which is have development plans for people and and, and actively work on them and mm -hmm. what they want to do and how they want to be. So and that, when we were doing your PDM, we we had a bit of a conversation about this, and I kind of liked your your approach to, to how you developed your team. Cool, cool, yeah. Um, and I think we had, I had a fairly um, structured process um, around, you know, being really clear on, um, you know, what what you expected from, from your role. And I think that was, that was something that, um, funnily enough, uh, I, I'm not sure happens enough in the, in the industry, but I think when, expectations are really really clearly set you know your team has has um, clear goals to work towards 
And and if they know what those goals are, they will they will work towards it, and that gives you something that you can always talk about every time you catch up, you know, with your sort of regular check-ins and your regular one-to-ones. Um, and I think it's just that having that total transparency and clarity um, for every person within the team about what it is they need to do to kind of get to that next level. Because, you know, everyone wants to get somewhere. Everyone wants to improve. Everyone wants to, to grow. Everyone wants to learn and, and sort of progress through their career. Um, and as long as you've got those kind of key measurable goals to be able to work towards, it's actually it, it's, it's a lot easier to be able to get there when you know what you've got to do. Um, it's also understanding, you know, the different roles in your business. So, so what, what drives a creative is quite different from what drives yeah. a, a, an account manager or an accountant or a, or a developer. Um, Molly, so you must must deal with a whole lot of different kinds of personalities. Um, I sure do. <laughs> uh, because I love uh, them all. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, um, a creative director once told me that, that his studio, he likened his studio to being like a, a box of colored pencils and you need all of those different uh, personalities and, and, and kind of types uh, to build the business. So and I imagine Rush is a bit like that. Yeah, um, I like absolutely adore how different all of our people are and you just have to continuously be aware of your own assumptions. So even saying, you know, designers are motivated by this and engineers are motivated by this. There will be similarities, of course, because they're drawn to things for similar reasons at times, but I never cease to be surprised by people ever. Mm -hmm. And everyone is so different. So um, something I learned actually when I kind of went through my um, agile journey, kind of consulting in that space was the idea of um, empiricism. So um, I think quite often you can kind of go and look at articles or best practice and those sorts of things. But I'm sure this is the same for a lot of design processes as well. You really need to open yourself up to the empathy to understand the people that you have in your team and then learn from what's working really well and continuously build on that. So who are all of the different people we have? What are the things that work for them in this environment? And how do we um, continuously adapt that so that we're building off our own um, experiences? Because uh, it can be really easy to have a starting point of putting people in boxes and going, oh, well, this works well for this group of people, um, where there'll be definitely at least three people in that box that are like, what the heck, this does not work for me at all. <laughs> mm. I think also, um, Nick mentioned before, that the, like that focus on expectations. And I think you have to be really careful with expectations. Um, I think more like people feel more bought into their role and their development and, you know, their future with a company if they feel like they're actually a part of designing or co-authoring what great looks like. Um, if, you know, if you've got a manager who has just expectations and that person's not meeting them, like how demotivating and frustrating must that be to like just constantly not be living up to someone's expectations or if you kind of remove that whole concept and just focus on making agreements with one another around what success looks like then you get the opportunity for people to kind of surprise and delight and extend beyond your expectations that don't exist mm. because who are you to have expectations? <laughs> yeah. hey, um, a, I think that's a really, a really good place to, to end that, you know, um, and I want to thank uh, Molly and Kirsty and Nick for, for sharing their thoughts and experiences of, of um, 
building the game. Thanks, everybody. Nice. Thanks, guys. Jim, thanks for having me. You've been listening to a Designers Institute Decast, and we'll see you again next time.